0: This is Catherine. Welcome to Friendly Anarchism. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself?
1: Um, this is Adam Leith from Bismarck, North Dakota.
0: All right, and you're part of a friends meeting in Bismarck. Yes. And is it a is it um, programmed or unprogrammed?
1: Unprogrammed.
0: Unprogrammed. Okay, awesome. You said that in your email, there's only a few of you in the unprogrammed meeting.
1: Yeah, about six folks.
0: So you really only need a few people to worship.
1: Yeah, um, in fact, um, I, I, I've actually only been involved for three or four years, and I've never actually visited, um, another meeting, uh, larger than ours, um, but, uh, You know, it's a pretty close group of people. Um, We're friends, and we're also friends with each other. (laughs) um, I feel like uh, it's um, a very intimate and enriching um, group that we have together. Um, We usually have uh, kind of a study and discussion as well as our... Um, silent worship and usually um, same people participating in both.
0: What do you study? Do you use the um, Quaker Friends Bible Study method?
1: Yes, we do. And in fact, the folks who um, kind of develop that um, are actually who used to be members of our meeting in Bismarck, uh, Larry and Joanne Spears. I never knew them personally, but uh, apparently they um, started the meeting about 30 years ago and um, always been kind of a small group, but now um, yeah, we still get together very early every Sunday morning.
0: <laughs> um seems like with so few people you can get consensus on a later time.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, That's something I've brought up many times and I, I've said this, is definitely um, said something about the age of um, quite a few uh, over the years as it's um, always began that, uh, around 8 o'clock in the morning uh, and that it I, I think a lot of younger people who may come uh, don't always, and I go, but like to complain about how early we meet. <laughs> um.
0: I usually, there's usually um, a morning and a later morning meeting. I've been to the Eugene one and the Portland one, and they both have a early worship and a later worship. And even though it's okay. early, I tend to, I always want to go to the earlier one than the later one. The later one usually is more, you know, a little bit, I don't know, less silent. <laughs> that's a thing. And, you know, more families and um, the earlier one always feels more contemplative, you know. So, like, I understand the, the early morning thing. Although 8, that's, that's pretty early.
1: Yes. And um, the uh, main... Reason that uh, that keeps us at that time is that our meeting house is really that we um, we meet in the uh, Unitarian Universalist Church in Bismarck, and uh, we pay our rent by making coffee for the UU's church service and setting up uh, chairs and benches and so on before we begin our meeting, and they have two services later in the um, morning and early afternoon, so we have our particular time. It's pretty quiet until some of the UUs start coming in to get ready for their service, and of course they really like to talk.
0: Right. (laughs) Um especially comparatively right
1: yes um and in fact our two groups are we are pretty they are socially we're two very close groups we all know each other, but uh there's definitely a difference in style for meeting formally when uh in, in,
0: do you have a lot right, of... A little
1: talking, a little bit of singing, and then, right. uh, um, just us sitting, being quiet.
0: <laughs> do you, um, do you have a lot of fully silent meetings? Do you get a lot of, do you have a lot of, um, vocal ministry in such a small group?
1: No, not very often. Um.
0: That sounds... I'd say... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying that sounds, I really, I, I really like um, silent meetings, I feel like they can be more gathered sometimes. Um, you know, yeah, I, I definitely. Get... Oh, I apologize. Go ahead.
1: Oh, I, I would say that as far as, you know, a meeting that's generally, you know, not a lot of, um, vocal ministry being voiced, um, I, I feel like, yeah, I tend to. Um, Feel more gathered, and when there is ministry to be shared, that it tends to um, be something that speaks much more directly and um, is something it's important to be said
0: if it gets said mm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Is the coffee any good in North Dakota? <laughs>
1: the coffee?
0: Yeah, that you make for the Unitarians?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, they order from some fair trade cooperative, full it's um, roasted and ground for those. Um, like I, I think it's just your typical church coffee setup, a large stainless steel percolator. Um, It would probably be fairly decent coffee if you didn't make it in um, a machine that was filled with several decades of sludge and so on. Um, (laughs) Um, I I usually bring my own coffee to the meeting.
0: That's funny. It's like your rent, and so I guess you don't want to take their rent. Um, I... You want to talk more about... It's so interesting that the people who came up with the Friends Bible Study are from your meeting. That's really cool. I didn't know that one before talking to you. Um, for the audience, do you want to sort of explain how Quaker Friends Bible Study is a little different?
1: Sure. Um, well, it's set up very much that there's kind of a process of um, contemplating, um, say, Um, like if you're using a Bible passage you you take um, a particular um, passage that you're going to be discussing and um, have it read out loud and take some time just to kind of sit there with it and then there's uh, um, like six questions that um, you, you would go Around your group say in a circle and everybody answers just speaking to the question that um, is asked without really responding to um, what other people have said but just saying what is um, your response to um, the particular question and so I I should know these by now, um, first they ask, what, "What's the what's the core meaning of your particular text or passage that you're using?" And the second question is, "What um, new light um, I usually take that to mean kind of new insight um, reading this has um, brought up for you?" And then. Is this true to your personal experience, and then what uh, would what what do you think uh, other peoples um, especially say uh, another um, religious group's response to this passage might be? Hmm. Um, and then, what are implications for um, your life personally, or for um, your meeting or your study group? And then, the final questions are: Is what is problematic in this passage?
0: Mm, I like that. That's a, that's a yeah. good um, a good contemplation on that because that's not something necessarily that every religious sect would be okay with saying about biblical verse you know
1: yes and um I know our meeting uh will take we we haven't been using we've been setting um a theme for like a four month like a quarterly um meeting period of time that we meet. For our study, it's not always a Bible um, verse. Um, we'll take from uh, many different sources, often um, contemporary or um, past Quaker um, authors. Um, I, currently, we, we've been looking at. Um, just for a couple of weeks now, uh, what, how historically and that um, Quakers have responded to issues of war and peace, and how that um, kind of trying to come to some understanding of. The situation we're in right now, mm-hmm. I know quite a few people in our meeting are quite concerned that um, we're dealing with, you know, uh, being close to much more, um, you know, have, having mm-hmm. more war going on mm-hmm. and, um, where I, I just think... Um, you know, through most of my life, beginning when I was in like in middle school, beginning high school, the United States been in Afghanistan and Iraq, and people are becoming more and more concerned that um, as disastrous as those particular wars have been, that we may be. Coming to something that's maybe quite a bit worse, and so we, in our study, we've been trying to find where where there, there's some kind of if, is there some kind of wisdom in dealing with um, both this fear and yeah. the reality that you know is creating that fear.
0: Mm-hmm. In the email you sent me. You said you were pondering anarchism and Jesus as a revolutionary. So, how did those um, two things for you fit together? How did you get to anarchism?
1: Well, I, I think I, I've long had um, kind of uh, interest in, in history,
0: and um, kind of, I know
1: when I was in school. Um, At pretty much any level of school I was in, um, I I was very um, dissatisfied by what I learned in history classes just by the the quality of the teaching and the content being presented. And so I quickly turned to trying to educate myself on that. And I was always interested in how conflict was carried out. Within, you know, kind of a level of civil society, so something that popped up in American history very quickly with um, anarchists, wobblies, communists, um, the free speech fight, which meant something different then, um, and I, I was just I. I think, if anything, there—it was really Emma Goldman. Really struck me as somebody who's very interesting, Um, and she was always behaving very badly. (laughs) And um, uh, that—that I I became very interested in that, and um, just began reading a lot of um, what those late nineteenth, early twentieth century. North American anarchists wrote, and then realized there was, you know, history in the wider world that these people had taken part in, and um, I, I was very interested in the ideas that they were presenting in direct democracy, anti-capitalism, and... Um, and, you know, going back to, you know, the mid-20th century even, there's, you know, people are being put in jail for writing magazine articles about birth control. Mm-hmm. Things that, you know, I are much, almost taken for granted much more than um, in just a small number of years. Uh, you know, maybe 50 years, uh, the attitudes and policies around it changed a great deal and it's not considered a particularly radical um, issue as much anymore. Um, and at one time, it was the, the same people who said, you know, we need to organize um, a workers' revolution were the same people who said things like, birth control should be legal and affordably available. hmm And I think when, when I, you know, when you understand something that sounds um, like such a, you know, kind of far-fetched, very utopian thing, like a world after capitalism... And something that's been achieved to a much greater degree, by, for example, um, you know, having uh, birth control and abortion available, and not associating the two with each other anymore. And at one time, they were um, championed by the same people. And I was, yeah, I was just. I I I was really taken with this, and uh, when I began to, you know, go to um, protests and met people who were organizing these things, organizing in unions, um, a great many, but there was a, you know, very Contemporary living anarchist tradition, and
2: mm-hmm. I
1: naturally was, went their way to, because I had, I had, a, you know, felt like I had some background of knowing what this had been about, but no experience in my life of it. Um, and so I you know, met with, you know, movement people, became involved, and um, I always felt like that more, the more radical um, kind of trajectories that people wanted to take, and that were, you know, more correct ways to organize these things, and relate amongst each other, and
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and that the, the two, you know, go together, that um, you come to a sense that you organize, you know, face-to-face with other people um, that you don't elect a board of directors and a, um, you know, executive director, but you do it amongst yourself, and I found that people tend to make better decisions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
0: do you remember the first anarchists you met?
1: Um, I'm probably more often the first anarchist most people around me meet. Um rather than me remembering
0: the first anarchist but um, <laughs> I've met. What's it like introducing yourself as an anarchist?
1: Um, I'll often uh, not introduce myself initially as an anarchist. Um, if only because... I, if they, I'm meeting with um, other people about, you know, there's some issue that comes up in the community that people want to do something about. Um, There's enough of kind of a trying to bring people around to something where, like, oh, well, we've all gotten together for a meeting. Why don't we come to a consensus instead of wait to see what this nonprofit tells us Mm -hmm. we should do, Mm -hmm. and so on. Um, And by the time that I I found, you know, you people to, like, come to a consensus around the first thing, and then you'd be like, well, that's kind of what anarchism is about. And,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um And be much more on board um, for hearing that Mm -hmm. from you. Um, It's not something where I I think I I need to keep it a secret or anything. It's just um, that there's a lot of kind of meeting somebody at the point where they're ready to even. Here, where, let's if anarchism didn't have a lot of the baggage in you know, popular imagination that it does have, and just the fact that it's you know a technical term for um, a political ideology, um, a lot of times you know first time people are involved in um, leading other people in the community to talk about uh common interests that they want to take some action on that's alien enough to them
2: mm-hmm.
1: that what by the time they introduce something like saying well I'm an anarchist that that's just the that's uh very alien um idea for them to often um kind of process mm-hmm. right away.
0: Well and in the end the name isn't really as important as the praxis. So if you're if you're if you are coming from a, you know, anarchist way of doing things like you were saying, then that is enough. You're introducing those methods to people and then the outcome is the same whether or not they call them anarchic methods, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think that definitely um you know that that is. I, I think there, there's something in that. You know, introducing somebody to that uh, a methodology of approaching um, politics and meeting with other members of their community and taking action on something. Um, where that's definitely effective if something continues. Um, where people want to keep meeting and keep doing action on it, I, I think that having, yeah, um, you know, that there is a that anarchism is a you know both that word means an identity, a, a approach, a group of methods and processes. As well as a very long history of people employing those methods and processes, and that identity, mm-hmm. um, then I think it, it becomes, you know, important to um, let people know what that's about, um, because I, I think that that's very helpful. I, I think most. There may be something where a lot of people may, who are interested in anarchism may be the kind of people like me who go out of their way to find out by reading and researching about it. But I think more often um, people are going to be introduced by its actual practice around them.
0: What kind and of... Event- Oh, I apologize.
1: No, go ahead.
0: What kind of community projects have you done?
1: Um, well, in, um, I, when I was living, um, I was living in the eastern part of the state, um, ways away from where I'm at now, um, we did have a community bicycle workshop, um, that we, uh, We had this shop that was open to the public. You could come in and, you know, it was a place where we had tools and um, also mechanics who knew how to put together bikes. And you bring your bike in and you could learn how to do maintenance, fix it. Um, We also had a very large... um, uh, kind of service for getting people who had no means of, uh, um, purchasing, you know, a bicycle, um, to volunteer and, um, get one, and that was organized as a collective, um, we, the staff of, the workshop, we, we tried to come to consensus about things, and, um, there's been more often um, with a lot less sort of real property attached to it, like a workshop, mm-hmm. um, would be um, uh, different um, campaigns on, on you know things that get categorized as, as generally as political. I um, you know when Occupy Wall Street was happening, and there were... Quite a few people who were interested in doing something locally that um, was in solidarity with that, as well as um, had a definite impact on you know their lives, where they, locally where they were at, um, which I think is a really um, good, a, a very powerful part of all the uh, the tools that come along with um, anarchism is that it's always something that is going to be about the life you're living right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there, there, it, there's Of course, there's there's kind of the pie in the sky aspect of it, like wouldn't it be great if we had, you know, a society of, you know, instead of bureaucracies, we have syndicates, and instead of hierarchical workplaces, we have collectives, and instead of politicians, we have direct democracy, but in the meantime, we trudge along day to day, um, and there's a way of maybe not making that trudging along day today, not so uh, say dismal in <laughs> being so alienated from both the people around you and in what kind of action you take to um, make your life better. Mm
0: hmm. Right now you're um, working. Right now you're working on Dakota Access Pipeline stuff.
1: Uh, yes, um, where I'm at is we're about forty miles away from uh, Standing Rock, um, and the um, since last year when so many mass arrests happened. Um, Um charges in the um county court.
2: Wow.
1: And yeah, and, and this is a county where they're they're not up to date at all, not caught up with their typical, you know, caseload. From three or four years prior to this. Um, And and things that, one thing about Dakota Access um, and the um, movement at Standing Rock are preceded by several years of um, development of um, oil industry. Um, being extracted through fracking and a very large population increase in a very rural area. Hmm. Um, So everything was kind of thrown into um, no small amount of chaos and confusion prior to this. Um, And so there's still... Things that happen um, dealing with the pipeline itself, um, often with uh, lawsuits, Um, but I've um, been more involved with uh, doing support for people who are going into um, court with A lot of times there are misdemeanor charges of, uh, um, you know, disorderly conduct and um, uh, just very strange, vague misdemeanor Mm. charges that um, are... um, I believe a majority of them so far have been dismissed although last month there were two people who were sentenced to jail time or disorderly conduct
2: well
1: this is something that in most cases if you're found guilty of I believe the standard sentence is a stern talking to
0: <laughs> is that is that in North Dakota law Stern talking to
1: um uh, I, I don't think that's how the code actually reads, but that does seem to be how it is generally practiced.
2: Mm.
1: Um, in this case, the judge um, on a bench trial, so there was no jury, um, decide, sent um, two water protectors to jail. Um, one for the really she was sentence to six days, served or got time served from. When she had been arrested, because they they were booking people on these um, misdemeanor charges, driving people across the state because the jail in locally did not fit everybody in it.
0: And, oh yeah,
1: yeah, and then um, uh, another uh, young man was sent to. Uh, I'd have to look it up to do sure. I believe it was something like 20 or 21 days. And I am not, I, I think he served at least two weeks of that. Um, and yeah, that's jail time near, you know, more than two weeks for disorderly conduct. Um, and that particular judge was brought in for these cases. Um, He's retired. um, And he's this prior to this judge coming on, the um, other judge who was hearing a lot of the cases was finding quite favorably for defendants, dismissing charges or finding them not guilty. And this judge is pretty much brought in to start finding people guilty.
0: Yuck. That's a gross thing to do.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, And, you know, this is... But the state of North Dakota just took, um, I believe it's around $18 million from Energy Transfer Partners, which owns the Dakota Access Pipeline, Mm -hmm. as, um, you know, it's a gift. Um, to reimburse for expenses for um, policing of the protest when the pipeline was being constructed.
0: Because that's not corrupt at all.
1: No, no, this is—it's um, uh, it, it, kind of beyond. Um, like you say, like is that corruption? It'd be like it's not even a good way of taking a bribe. Because you should definitely get payment up front.
0: <laughs> reimbursed for you, <laughs> <Not>, Brian.
1: <laughs> yeah, reimbursed for your, um, you know, being a stooge of this corporation. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I would have made them pay beforehand at least.
0: So <laughs> you. Yeah. Hmm. weren't asking me, though. Have you been doing, um, what kind of support have you been, like, what kind of jail support, or?
1: Um, well, until we, there's a few people been in jail, just the, these last two I mentioned, um, were the first that were jailed for being found guilty of anything. Um, there are some people who are in jail, people. Pending federal charges, Mm. and so luckily, in in a lot of cases, we not had to do a huge amount of jail support. Um, And more of what I've been involved in is um, having it. So that there, when a hearing or a trial is happening. I, I just go, and the judge and the prosecutor and the defense and the defendant see that there's a local person who's interested in what's going on, mm-hmm. because a very, what was something that was circulated a lot both in media and just in the reaction of the local community to the protests were that these were people who are not from here.
2: Mm
1: who had a problem with this, which is really ridiculous considering this is going across, you know, the Standing Rock Sioux tribes land and who's from here more than people who are indigenous. I, I don't know how you can be more from here. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, but you know, that. That's kind of that, um, you know, the amount of racism, uh, especially as it's kind of directed at Native people um, around here, has been a major influence on what's happened and continues to happen. And, and the, um, there's also been um, much more very Uh, public and vocal expression of that racism.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, And it's on every level from, like, people, um, you know, harassing somebody in, you know, public to um, how the police behave. Uh, There was, um, in another... um, city last year the police raided a sweat lodge ceremony Mm. that was um it's part of that city's as a native american affairs commission and it was a sweat lodge on city land that had been dedicated to having a sweat lodge there and uh the police went in and pulled people out of this sweat lodge. I believe this was maybe in, I think, January or February last year or last winter. Um, So that um, is something where, I don't know, I I, I just think of if I was at, like, the Quaker meeting and the police came into the meeting Mm -hmm. to conduct any kind of business, I I feel like that would be, be quite a bit of outrage. Um, not just from you know our meeting, but uh, we say to the local paper, other churches. You know, mm-hmm. we were worshiping and we were interrupted violently
0: mm-hmm.
1: by you know armed agents of the state. That that wouldn't fly.
0: No, definitely a double standard in spiritual practice, like respecting respecting spiritual practice.
1: Oh yes definitely
0: the case um yeah i mean it's already it's already horrible and gross but just add on that another level of that kind of disrespect of pulling people out of a religious you know a spiritual place it's just it's just even that much grosser you know
1: yeah and, and it's something that um a lot of the response has been, well, if this cop had just known that, you know, that a sweat lodge is a ceremony that that's not high, like it's being worded as cultural competency, mm. um, and not just like I feel like
0: it, basic respect.
1: Yeah, and that's something. Um, for one, in North Dakota, there are five. Indian reservations on which there are at least 10 different tribes, and you cannot drive two hours in any direction from any part of the state without encountering one of these reservations. I feel like there's a point where this cannot be about competency in understanding Somebody whose ethnicity and cultural practice is different from the majority. This is about. This is just about race, and I don't see how there's any way of how I you you have to talk so much when when the mayor of this town responded to that there was a raid on a sweat lodge, that the amount of explaining why it wasn't racism kind of seemed to me to make the case that it was nothing but racism. hmm
2: hmm
0: Yeah, I looked up the statistics. Bismarck is, like, 96% white. Yes. And then there's been an influx sort of for the the, the standing rock of a lot of also sort of white out of towners. Was that is that accurate? Is it how what who were the people coming out to the protests that you saw? Like what kind of people?
1: Um well the first people who came were mostly Native Americans. And were coming, if they were not um, coming from Standing Rock itself, they were coming from other um, reservations that were at one time um, the area that Standing Rock and about a third of the state of South Dakota were one reservation. Um, And over time, more treaties and more acts of Congress um, split up that large reservation into um, smaller and smaller ones. Um, so there are what the community at Standing Rock is a portion of a much larger group of people who are um, closely related in um, their culture and their language that at one point in time had not had um, the barriers of these, you know, bureaucratic marks on paper where these reservations are and a lot less, um, you know, a lot less white people living amongst them. And so if somebody's not from Standing Rock, it doesn't necessarily mean they are not um, part of um, a community that is very close to Standing Rock. Immediately south of the Standing Rock Reservation, which um, is actually in two states, it's in North Dakota and South Dakota, and it's immediately adjacent to the Cheyenne River Reservation which also gets all of its drinking water from a few miles downstream from where the Dakota access pipeline was um, installed. Um, so the first people that came were really folks from Standing Rock and the rest of um, what the what they call the by the various names, the Sioux Reservations, which is mostly um, Lakota people, Lakota and Dakota people. And from there, um, many people who are, are involved in other environmental um, movement um, people have come that, um, you know, so much of these really frontline um, environmental movement takes place in areas where uh, in, on indigenous land, whether that's in Canada or the U.S., um, and people who worked on these other um, campaigns came as well. Um, and after it got to a certain size, um, and a certain kind of notoriety, um, people from everywhere came, um, and I met people from Mongolia and Russia and every state in the U.S. and Mexico and South America and, um... You know, I didn't really realize this. There there are indigenous people in Europe, (laughs) um, from you know far north in Scandinavia, and this um, many um, uh, churches um, had people come because this was a um, prayer camp, Mm -hmm. and they they were invited. I know the Unitarian Universalists had a very large presence. Um, the um, I, I met quite a few people from different Quaker meetings
2: mm-hmm.
1: coming. So um, yeah, there, there wasn't like a stereotype of any one kind of place or person that came to the, those camps. They came yeah. from everywhere
0: you want to talk about the power of prayer for a second um why how a lot of anarchism or anarchists are very atheist and then a lot yeah. of the activist movements sort of on the left and on the liberal left and progressive are also also sort of um you know non-secular or atheist and Right. The idea of talking about, like, the power of prayer is sort of seen as, like, that's not helpful, you know, like, that's just, like, a way of brushing off um, your actual responsibilities to a movement, which is true sometimes if the power of prayer stops there, you know, if you just say, oh, well, thoughts and prayers, and then that's all you do, but I think we're not giving enough credit to what prayer actually can bring to a movement, and the fact that the indigenous peoples at Sandy Rock were specifically asking for prayer, you know, like, why were they doing that? You know?
1: Yeah. And I definitely, I I agree with, um, you know, your observation on the, the idea of thoughts and prayers, um, and, um, maybe kind of brushing off, taking concrete action on things, um, and as far as that's when, if that's what prayer is used for, um, i say it, it's not really good for much of anything. And I think that uh, most people, and I, I think I included myself in this until fairly recently, I, I thought that's what that really meant, was this was kind of... Um, Check how you feel subjectively and don't take the action that you really need to. And and sort of wedging a division in there as if, you know, doing the one um, precluded you from responsibility of the other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, when you know, when people were called the Standing Rock in an invitation that it was in prayer, um, I think that took a lot of people, and I, I definitely myself included, uh, um, learning a, a new definition of what prayer Means. I think in some ways it's hesitant to use the word mindful or mindfulness because of how it's used so much and kind of uh, again in a a secular and um, kind of uh, commodified um, way where you you buy something that's about mindfulness and then do the, these discrete practices and you get a discrete um, result. But this was, you were beginning to, all the whole of your lifestyle begins to change where you're being more mindful of, everything that you're doing and um all of the responsibilities that you have to um it's other people if you're in the camp you know it would be um you know your particular neighborhood of the camp and then you know what if you had like a certain job in the camp and so on as well as to um the people to your social environment, to the physical environment, and seeing how you react, you had to interact with these things, and as well as the effect that these things that are usually kind of defined as something beyond yourself
2: mm-hmm.
1: really do have an effect on who you are, and what you're doing. Um, And so I know there's quite a bit of difference if, um, you know, if it's a Sunday and I walk into a church and they say, let us pray, that means something quite a bit different than if I ask uh, somebody I know who who lives at, at Standing Rock I say, What did you do today? They say, Well, I got up early in the morning before the sun came up and I prayed. Um, there, there's a very different meaning between those two. Um, and it, it has something to do with the particular actions that you take. Uh, they're both, you know, kind of in a way that there's, it's, uh, ritual that's being carried out but it's not about what specific um you know form of the um different kinds of ritual or ceremony that that is but the um kind of the total meaning of that within a person's life Mm -hmm. and I think that when you get you get something together that, like the camps that were um, at Standing Rock, where the protests were, um, there's something where that was not um, organized with um, very much formal hierarchy keeping it together. And at the same time, there was not a great deal of very conscious application of non-hierarchical practices, like you would say, like, have um, coming from, like, an anarchist process uh, Mm -hmm. of trying to get... um, a consensus and, you know, sending people up to your spokes council and so on. But it came from a, there was definitely um, a cultural basis that came from uh, Lakota and Dakota culture that is very um, decentralized um, and that had to work not only to organize the camp as people who are uh, Lakota and Dakota related to each other and the various divisions of that community, but also begin relating people who are not indigenous, but living right next to these people in these camps into um, that camp. And um, I. I, I really fascinating how these two approaches which historically really are unrelated ended up with I think a very similar result and I think being and and a process for getting that result and I just think because it works hmm it works to make people live together in a cooperative manner without, you know, police, without coercion. And one thing is that having an approach to that where what is called prayer, having this um, really deliberate and mindful um, approach to this kind of cooperative and tending toward communal um, way of living together um, it, it changes your attitude your mindset that um, it makes living near um, a lot of other people you don't necessarily know um, you can't get away from these really much easier, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. which is which is a problem of you know all of human existence, not just of a <laughs> yeah. of a protest camp. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's something where, um, and, and there's very much a an aspect of um, prayer where that, that's humbling and. Your ego, your um, importance individually, is much less, mm-hmm. and it helps you accept that, and it helps you also project that in your behavior.
2: Mm.
1: That um, you be, that you are you're you're choosing to take on something that will. Um, it, it, I think there's a lot of aspect of uh, there's generosity in taking on uh, that kind of prayer, and mm-hmm. it's generosity of yourself, where you're necessarily giving, you know, basically everything that you're doing is in some way giving into something. You're 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 adding as much of yourself as possible into something that is bigger than yourself, um, and I, I think that's something you know you can think of in a mundane ways of structuring, you know, how people work that make that work one way, and there's a, this approach as well where. Um, you kind of take that on from a spiritual perspective.
0: Mm -hmm. I have to wonder if there's also just a practicality of the emotional health of indigenous people and people of color saying if if a bunch of, you know, white people and colonizers are going to come try and help us, if they come in a prayer, then at least they're that's sort of a, trying at least to get into a mindset of humbleness, you know, into a mindset of thinking larger or thinking outside of themselves when we have a tendency as as white people to sort of dominate and not be humble and to not listen, you know? So it, it could just, you know, as well as the importance of it as a spiritual practice, just as like, was uh, one of the things I think that prayer is actually very practical too, you know? Like, saying, you know, just thoughts and prayers being totally impractical is, like, if people aren't taking it seriously, it is impractical. But I think think prayer as, um, you're sort of saying, like a societal glue, you know, as a way that we can actually become in ourselves and in our interactions with each other in the world um, calmer and more peaceful. It's very practical, and it's not only is it practical, it's we need it, you know.
1: Yeah, and I, I think, as you, you mentioned, that, that having a lot of white people coming to a gathering of indigenous people, um, yeah, that, that's uh, definitely you know going to be problematic. Um, I'm, you know, what uh, the local term that um, Native people use uh, is I'm um, wasichu. That can just mean like white, non-native. Um, and it's also in the Dakota language has some uh, derogatory uh, connotations. Um, and uh, it's something that um, it, it um, just in uh, that, I have opportunity living where I do um, to interact with indigenous people all the time in a non-prayer setting um, for every sort of kind of secular, um, you know, gathering of people. Um, And I think, yeah, there's something where um, really... in the case of standing up, spelling it out to people beforehand that you're coming into a situation and a place that um, it, it, it's not how, it's not yours. It's not something that uh, where, where you're necessarily going to be in charge. And um, I know it one way it was articulated to me is um for leadership through service um, was one phrase that I heard used a lot. And meaning that instead of, uh, you know, kind of organizing things in the um, make the decision kind of way, was um, no, go cook the meal, go clean the toilets, you mm-hmm. um, will do the unglamorous things that need to be done. Mm-hmm. And you'll be contributing in a more important way um, than even though it's not important in the way that um, you are, that I think most people kind of privilege, um, you know, uh, leadership and making a contribution. I, I mean, I think for white people, that's a good place for them to hang out for a while. Um, we've, been, we've been ignoring that for a very long time.
0: Yeah. As
1: that That's, you know, a thing that... It always has to be done. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, and it ends up being done. Um, why don't we pay attention to what it's like to actually do that instead of so many of the things that we've decided to both culturally and through and politically um, give status and power to, um, which, you know, may not in fact be where real status and real power come from.
0: hmm I love hearing about all of people's, you know, quote-unquote little projects I think they're so important and they they're the what make up the fabric of a good society you know I have a friend who just knits hats just all the time is knitting hats for people for um unhoused people in the community and it's like there's not a lot of prestige that goes along with that you know it's just sort of you know she just sits at home and knits or knits while she's doing different things but um that's yeah. so meaningful you know and you know cleaning toilets clean to- because it needs to be done and it's meaningful to someone because it's it's doing labor that somebody else then doesn't have to do, so you're taking labor off of somebody's hands, you know? So, yeah. um, I think concentrating on all those little pieces of service can be hard, because especially if we have egos, so that does come back again to prayer and trying to, like, stay humble, you know? And, um, I have to do that, you know? i I think I think, I think we all do. Spending deliberate time, you know, intentional time to be humble and to appreciate all of those small acts of service, you know, is what's going to help, help in the overall, you know, and I think help in the short term too, just in those interactions with, um, people who have less privilege than you do, you know. Yeah. And
1: I, there, there's something I think that happens kind of when you, you, when you stop to concentrate on these, um, you know, kind of, yeah, these things that we think of as kind of smaller acts of service, things, um, you you, when you pay attention to what your own doing of these things, you begin to appreciate what other people do along those lines as well. Um, Which I think is really important when, you know, there's a lot of, like, currently I only have to clean, like, one toilet at my home that I'm the only person that uses. Um, But I definitely, like, that I know that that's something that needs to be done. I know there are people in my community that, like, that's what their job for making a living is. And, you know, when you, you don't have to have, you know, a really prestigious, high paying job to kind of quickly forget that that's a reality of what needs to be done. Um, I think, you know, it helps in a certain way, of, you know, kind of your imagination and your empathy. I think so kind of hand in hand, and the healthier one is, the more the other will be.
0: Well, on that note, it has been an hour. Okay. And I think we had some really beautiful conversation in there. I'm so glad I had you on.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed having this little chat with you.
0: Uh, Yeah. So everybody, thank you for listening. We'll see you uh, again in two weeks. All right.